Three, two, one. We're here. Hello, Howdy. hello, gentlemen. Happening, everyone. Hello, Happy hello. Wednesday. Back again. Another exciting week. It is. The marine layer is finally breaking through, and I see something blue up there. It's kind of nice. So the holiday weekend coming up, so that'll be good. We'll see how the the cyber activity it is. If there's anything going down, we'll have to report on next week. But uh, we'll see how it goes. They never hit on a Friday at 2 p.m. on a holiday weekend. Never. Well, that's usually self-inflicted on holiday weekend. So everybody out there, don't make any changes this weekend. Yeah, no, no change Friday, no right? Change freeze Friday for for the sanity of everybody in IT, please. That's funny. All right. So the gang's all back together. Um, I think we each have a, a couple of things we want to kind of walk over. I don't know, Brian, you want to kind of kick us off this week and see what you got? Yeah, definitely. So we have a ransomware attack that exposes about 500,000 people uh, from the Chicago um, school district, public schools. They had um, about 60,000 employees as well. And the interesting part here is one, it took a while to get notification out. And I'll talk a little bit about why with that. But the second thing is this was really a third party vendor that they had that had the uh, ransomware attack occur to them. And so Digging into that third party, they end up being a nonprofit educational organization, and they um, they basically analyzed student data that's shared by the school system to help design instructional models and evaluate teacher performance. So if they can change some instructional things and get better performance out of everyone, and they work with 267 school systems overall and have over 2.8 million in student reach. And so from a couple of perspectives, one that's a third party that they allowed access to this data. And then the second factor is that it being a nonprofit, oftentimes nonprofits don't really put security first, right? So even if you sent a third party IT security um, questionnaire to them, they might not be able to even answer it from that perspective. Um, and so that, that brings up a lot of things. And then uh, an article that I was reading the other day was really challenging. Well, I mean, why did it take so long? Well, they didn't have the resources, so they probably weren't able to detect and respond to it quickly to even know if data was leaked from that perspective. Sure, the ransomware shows up, but they may not have an incident response plan in place and know how to even respond back to it or who to call or what to do. And if you go reach out to all the authorities and the different things, they're busy with all the other cases, and if it's not a high monetary value, with this being a nonprofit, they're not really like tied together, if you will. So they probably didn't even get responses back, and then until somebody started using that data that they collected. And then the last thing here is like they didn't get the social security numbers, but they got date of births and names and some other information. And so they're like, well, who cares? Like that data is like everywhere, but the attackers will use this data and go mine after you and maybe they create a fake social media account and you go and accept that person. And then the next thing they do is they message you and say, oh, I'm out of the country and I can't call you right now. I need a gift card. Bam, jackpot, they're in, right? Or they try to social engineer and they can go answer your three questions now that you have set up and they're able to get password recovery and get into your bank account or get into your email, or call up the cell phone provider that you have and do a SIM slam because they figure out that you have Bitcoin, 
right? The attackers know all this information. They buy all this off the dark web. And that's another source is, that, oh, well, I got all this fresh data and it's worth more money. And the attackers are able to sell it for a little bit more than stale data as well. So there's multiple things here that pile up. And I think people just forget oftentimes that this is the direction that they go after is social uh, media attacks through this, try to get into the email, try to get in the bank account, wire transfer money out, all these things. But the critical answers to your questions tend to be these. That's why it's good to have something like a password manager and make up fake answers that you can go back to the password manager and answer those questions so that they're random and they're not the same ones across um, the footprint overall, if you will. So these are some key things that I think a lot of people aren't thinking about and they're just like, oh, no big deal. It's just the basic information that's always out. But why did they finally come back and announce it if it wasn't really a big deal? And they're offering credit monitoring. And so it's somewhat useful. I mean, I get pops all the time. Oh, your data's on the dark web from the credit monitoring that I have. And it's like, well, what are you really going to do about it? Well, you can shut down your credit so that it's not active and you can't just go get real-time instant credit. There's apps now that all the credit um, bureaus have that you can go and turn it off temporarily. So if you're going to buy a car or you want that one-time 20% off at that specialty store because you sign up for their store card, you can do that so you can get approved and then you just turn it right back off, right? I mean, I do that with my debit card. I turn it off so it doesn't even work until I turn it back on and then I have to go turn it off again. Sure, it's a little bit of a pain, but like the other day, for me personally, I went to 7-Eleven. I don't really go there, but it was out of convenience to get cash. My bank declined the transaction because I don't normally go there. My history always shows that I go to their branded ATM machine, right? So the attackers can get this information, get on there and go. And a lot of people, they'll, they'll break in, they'll get the information. So like now that you log into your bank, maybe they didn't have your zip code. Well, now they logged into your bank and your address is right there under the contact us page or my account information. So now they have your zip code. They can reproduce your credit card that maybe they bought from somewhere else. And then they're able to go in 5,000 bucks gone. And what are you going to do? So anyways, I know I'm preaching today, but uh, I, think, I think that those are really good points. And one, one just, thing that yeah. bothers me about it is that you mentioned that a lot of folks kind of have this reaction of, yeah, well, that information's already out there. They, they almost act as if it's fatalistic, like, you know, oh, I'm going to get hacked. I'm going to get ripped off. I'm going to get screwed anyway. Like, that's that's not a healthy way of operating in this world, digital or otherwise. Like, imagine if we stepped out into traffic, like, yeah, well, I'm going to get hit by a car anyway. So I, why would I look both ways? Um, I think that we're kind of coming to a term here where there's this division of the people who are, well, I don't want to encourage paranoia, but aware and cautious and trying to take steps to defend themselves and their organizations, and then those who are not. And there's some kind of uh, natural selection that will occur here. And uh, if you have the choice, why would you choose to be on the other side of that? Exactly. Yeah, it's kind of like putting your head in the sand here. And like you said, Jordan, like you're kind of just playing it off like, ah, no big deal. Like it's not life and death information. But to Brian, your point, you know, you can use all this information to build a profile around somebody, use deeper social engineering attacks. And 
it's almost like a way for the company that had the incident to kind of play it down like, well, you know, like, yeah, we had this issue, but you shouldn't slap my wrist too hard because it's only email addresses they got or X, Y, Z. But yeah, but you still have that, you know, that issue happen where somebody was able to get in through third party, et cetera. Like what more don't we know? And then they become future targets for other things too. So it's just, it's the whole like nonchalantness of it all is kind of the, the sad part really in this whole thing. It's like everyone used to be kind of accountable in this, in this type of scenario. I think maybe people kind of just look at this a little bit too black and white. Like it's like secure or not secure as opposed to like levels of risk. And they don't realize that they can mitigate their own level of risk by having less amounts of that data out there. It's like, you know, do you want the risk that you're going to get hit by a car to be 1% or 20% or 50%? And so that's the way I think people need to start viewing it is it's like, um, we're not trying to find a silver, silver bullet solution for all of our sensitive data, but we're trying to make it as hard as possible for attackers or hackers to actually get access to this. And like you said, it's, even if the data itse itself is not explicitly um, usable for malicious intent, it can easily be used to build profiles and complex social engineering engagements that turn into real compromises. So, um, you know, they, I, th I think that kind of mentality is more to uh, for like public relations and trying to, to, to keep good on the company's image by downplaying the, the uh, you know, the impact of the, the of the compromise. But in reality, you know, that mentality does to, to Jordan's point is, is a dangerous mentality. What we need to shift to is seeing this as personal risk. Um, what is our personal risk online? How much of our data is exposed? And what is the likelihood that we're going to get? Uh, impacted by this event. The less of that data that's out there, the less likelihood that you're going to get compromised. So um, yeah, great points all around. Yep. It's not going to end. Nope. Just going to keep occurring over and over until people take it serious. Exactly. Yep. How about you, yeah. Jordan? Uh, what, what do you have for us uh, this week? I think you had a couple interesting things you wanted to share, right? Yeah, sure. A little bit on, more on the technical side. Um, Pwn to Own is a, a common hacking contest. This is something that uh, occurs on an annual basis, actually in a couple of different locations. Pwn to Own Vancouver 2022 occurred recently, and uh, some zero-day vulnerabilities in Firefox were discovered, uh, both in the desktop application as well as the mobile application. And their, uh, their Outlook alternative, their mail client called Thunderbird, and uh, Thankfully, uh, while most organizations may take a few weeks to uh, respond to these, these notices, Mozilla was pretty quick to issue a patch and push that out. Um, and thankfully, we're at a place now where you don't have to update your browser by downloading a new uh, installer and manually installing it now. For the most part, your Chrome, your Safari, your Edge, uh, your Firefox, these things update on their own, but what you do have to do is make sure that you actually close the browser, which means that those of us, and I think there's probably a couple of us here in the room who keep 40 tabs open or more at all times, uh, we have to remember to reboot our systems. Uh, you know, I, I have uh, a friend of mine who reboots their computer every single night. And I think that that's probably a good habit to get in with these kind of things. So shout out to underscore manfp, Manfred Paul, uh, who, uh, earned $100,000 for this vulnerability. Um, I want to encourage any organization who's interested in crowdsourcing their security research to implement a bug bounty program. 
Um, but this is a, a pretty serious risk. In fact, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Administration, which, is, which we've mentioned here a couple of times, uh, also issued a notice emphasizing the importance that uh, users and administrators need to update their, uh, update their software, specifically the Mozilla Firefox browser. Um, and then uh, something else I wanted to add on to that is that we can have a uh, we can have a, a policy that's implemented both on you know a, a written policy as well as a technical policy for organizations. You can implement things like this through a GPO, force updates to your users there, um, and those kinds of things are going to help protect your your users, which helps protect your organization. Yeah, the other thing too, when it added that is you bring up some good points, right? Is you know, we're kind of talking about this from like the actual user perspective and hey, like you know, like you personally use Chrome or Firefox or whatever. But there's also a lot of systems out there that are deployed from a server standpoint, you know, Windows machines, et cetera, boxes where people use them for jump hosts and other things like that. And they sometimes get neglected from like the browser perspective, or hey, I installed Chrome on this new server to download some other software because, you know, Internet Exploder didn't want to work right, you know, whatever, things like that. Yeah, I went there. Um, so just, you know, be mindful to update all those systems, not just those ones you kind of use every day. And I think to your point, you know, Jordan, like they try to make it a lot easier where I know Chrome will like get a nice pop-up that says, hey, update required, just restart. And you kind of have to fully exit, close and relaunch it. So um, it takes a lot of the, the, the sting out of downloading getting the right version because it's hard to keep up with the versions. These things change so often. So just a good reminder to, you know, patch, right? Something we kind of talk about all the time. So, yeah. So I shouldn't wait for the little orange thing in Chrome to say it's time to update. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Literally yeah, at least sometimes. it keeps, it remembers all my tabs. So that makes life easier when I just close them all because I can go right back and launch them. So well, that's for you guys with 400 tabs. Yeah, you know, that's what one tab is for, I suppose. But, uh, you know, to be fair, there are a lot of like enterprise patch management software solutions. But at the consumer level, there's really not that many like, you know, recognizable ones that, that do a quality job. There are some out there, but maybe, uh, you know, to me, like that's maybe to give the end user a little bit of credit here. It's, it's as a power user, you may know what to look for in terms of uh, what to update drivers, software, whatever it is, but as a standard user, end user, if that's not being presented to you uh, readily in an easily understandable way, like how Windows pops up in the corner with a software update, then it could be kind of difficult to, to detect when these things uh, go out of date. So, you know, I, there, there probably is something to be said about more uh, accessible patch management solutions that for, you know, end users and allowing them to, to remediate their own issues uh, with minimal ease. Um, I, it's just a conversation I tend to have with, with some more layman individuals is like, how do I know when to do these things? It's like, yeah, it's a good, that's a good point, right? It's maybe obvious to, to somebody in the field, but um, outside of the, you know, the, the small banners you get, it's not very obvious. Yeah. Another thing that I found when I was researching this um, and I'm recognizing now that it's a little bit, uh, I'm a little bit late to the party here. This was actually announced in September. Uh, one of my favorite browser add-ons is from the Electronic Frontier Foundation or EFF. It's called HTTPS Everywhere. And what it does mm -hmm. is it forces your browser when you go to a website that doesn't have HTTPS by default. So you go to the website and it starts with HTTP colon slash, 
that's an unencrypted connection, which means that anybody on the network, uh, your ISP, um, admins, uh, a malicious actor who has a connection in between you and your destination could be snooping on that connection. Uh, and HTTPS everywhere actually forces a secure connection if that is available. That's something that I have used for many years and have always recommended as like the, the one basic add-on that any browser should add. Um, and I've noticed that uh, it actually is kind of obsolete now. Uh, a lot of the browsers have this built in, but it is a configuration that has to be set either by the user or by the administrators like we were talking about earlier. Uh, Firefox, Chrome, and Edge have it as an option. You can enable secure connections only. Uh, and actually, props to Apple for uh, emphasizing privacy and security. They have it as a default. The user doesn't have to do anything, which I think is, is good because a lot of Apple users never look at their settings page or their configuration page preferences and things like that anyway. Uh, if you're a Firefox user, you're probably the kind of person who goes into the preferences and sets things to your liking there. Um, not to make any judgments about people, but I, I, that's been my experience with those kinds of users using open source tools versus the one that comes with your um, with your device. And then to connect it to uh, the, the vulnerability and the browser security uh, issue there, um, a lot of people add these plugins and add-ons to their browsers. And we have to remember that each of these are a piece of software and most of them or many of them are able to connect to, modify, witness every single bit of data that comes into any web page that you go to. And that's a serious risk, uh, even if it is from a legitimate organization and even if it is a trustworthy piece of software, those organizations can get compromised. And there have been many instances of very popular browser add-ons getting compromised and then pushing an update to the downstream users that could infect their computers. So we do need to be very careful about installing any applications apps on our phones, or even browser add-ons. And just because it can get you an extra 10% off on you know, your shopping trip or something like that, we have to be careful about uh, what, the, what the risk is there too. Oh yeah, so, so I Jordan... enjoyed uninstalling Honor Lock because it's the cheat software I had to have when I was in school or whatever. And then there's a button, Report Abuse. Oh, that was so fun to check that box when I uninstalled that plugin because they watch everything on your machine, right? have access to your camera, your microphone, the screen share, all that stuff. So that was fun to get rid of that plugin. So That's sorry, Derek, one. go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say, so Jordan, so that means if I install this calculator app on my phone, I shouldn't say allow access to my camera roll, microphone, camera, location settings, et cetera, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, it, what, what does this app actually need to use? Um, exactly. And there are some really big organizations, social media companies come to mind. Uh, who are very insistent that, uh, no, you can't use our app unless you enable camera and microphone and location mm -hmm. and access to your files on your device and things like that too. Yeah, that's a whole other topic, right? It's just the, like the privacy of what the app's really doing and how, how deep they really go, like how much they hook into, you know, whether it's your computer, your browser, your phone, et cetera, right? And from an enterprise perspective, it, it relates to kind of the uh, the third party or vendor uh, connections that we all have. So if we have a service provider, we're using that as a connection or, a, or installing an application on our network. Uh, if that organization gets compromised, we've seen what happens with, for example, SolarWinds, not the only one, but just one of the more recent examples there. Uh, so uh, being careful about who we allow into our systems is 
analogous to being careful of who we allow into our homes. Yeah, that's a good point. So maybe I want to kind of shift gears a little bit. So, so Jordan, one of the things you were kind of mentioning was, you know, about these kind of like, you know, own to own, you know, bug bounties and kind of mentioning it from a, you know, Hey, like these are some, some great things that can come out of this. And I think we all agree. We've seen some fantastic things arise out of this and, you know, it's great to kind of uh, see people get rewarded, you know, monetarily and, and publicly and, and some recognition around finding these zero days and other things and, and these companies to offer up bounties and, and pony up. And so one of the articles I, I came across and kind of ties into this is, you know, from a, a, a DOJ perspective, they're kind of revising, you know, their kind of a computer fraud prosecution standards to kind of ease off what they're classifying as good faith research, right? So I think a lot of us here kind of fall in that same category as like bug bounties where like in the past, maybe if you were, let's say, poking around in, in a in a certain fashion, it might be seen as, you know, malicious when at the end of the day, there was some, you know, good faith for the, the person or the, the issue at hand to solve a true security threat or, you know, patch a mega, you know, security risk. Um, so, you know, it'll be kind of interesting to see how this plays out and, what some of the, the, the changing of the ruling is going to mean. Um, interesting enough, it sounds like this law was actually done uh, really early on, like in the 80s or around uh, war games. Um, I think we're all familiar and I've seen that movie yeah. many, many times. So um, it's kind of interesting how it started with something like that and you know where where things are now versus when that type of stuff was taking place is, is just changed dramatically, right? We're so uh, hyper-connected. So um, hopefully this means that we'll see more you know, good faith, if you will, kind of research and more people kind of uh, not potentially kind of falling under the the classification of malicious when when or if the intent was good. Um, one example comes to mind, actually, I don't know if you guys remember this, we were talking about when uh, Microsoft was having kind of several exchange zero days and the FBI, I believe it was, was actually going in and patching um, these rogue servers that they were still seeing like, like you know, on the internet, basically. So, um, it almost kind of ties into like, hey, was the FBI doing good faith by patching these rogue potential systems that were out there that were still vulnerable? So uh, just an interesting kind of policy and take on it. So it kind of falls under that that privacy and policy perspective and uh, less of a technical thing there. So, Well, the CFAA is older than half of the people on this call. <laughs> uh, Think about that. Yeah. It was it was put in place in 86, uh, largely by people who who didn't quite understand what the technology was, but understood things from a criminology standpoint. Uh, and the law hasn't changed, but it's good that the DOJ is starting to recognize and put into place that there are researchers out there who are doing things which are potentially against the letter of the law, but not against the intention of the law. And if we are disabling people like myself and Sammy from being able to research these things, it doesn't help society. Um, I'm friendly with somebody who was arrested and, and prosecuted by, uh, by under, under this law. He was actually arrested as he was trying to leave DEF CON uh, for some vulnerability, oh, wow. actually for some, from, for some software that he allegedly developed. Um, and I've, I've met and I'm very friendly with this guy and he's one of the good ones. It's not somebody that we should have locked away. Um, and even things like reverse engineering how a device works, whether it's your phone or a router or something like that, um, for example, a device that's out of date and is not receiving patches anymore. If you're reverse engineering that in order to implement your own uh, changes there, 
that could be against the letter of the CFAA law there. Uh, so this policy should help enable better, better research. And as somebody myself who started this kind of research at a young age and then got scared about, well, what if they think I'm a bad guy? Um, I might have started in the industry a little bit earlier if I if I had no knowledge that well, the DOJ will look at you differently than they would look at the the person around the world who's trying to actually commit a crime. Yeah, I think also to note, you know, this doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, this is a free pass to do a bunch of things and say, oh, I was doing good faith research. Like, no, it's not gonna that's not gonna work either. So it'll be a, a learning curve and balancing act. But I, I do think it is a a a step or trend in the right direction overall. So we'll just have to keep an eye on it and see what happens. How about you, Sammy? Oh, I think you're talking yourself on mute there, sir. Maybe one day he'll learn how to operate the audio. Uh, nope. Are the lips moving though? He was. Oh. I don't know. It's, uh, there I, you no, are. There you are. I was with. We're just sitting here. <laughs> I was like, you're awfully quiet. Yeah, I unmuted myself too. I, I had to reselect the uh, the the uh, headset, so maybe something changed there or something. Those but, those those pink headphones are getting closer and closer every day. Oh man, I know. It doesn't matter what we replace these guys with. There's always going to be some kind of AV issue. It's not what we do here. That's <laughs> all good. Yeah, no, no. But, you know, following that up with some more, you know, online identity issues, since this has kind of been like a hot topic as of recently, uh, as the, we as society look to move towards other password uh, alternatives, uh, password authentication alternatives. But this is kind of an interesting one that, uh, Krebs, Brian Krebs had uh, written an article about, uh, so shout out to him, but uh, recently their senators have been urging the FTC to do a probe of the company ID.me over selfie data uh, and the usage of that data. Um, for those that don't know, ID.me is an online identity network company that allows people to prove their legal uh, identity online. Uh, they can use this to basically access uh digital credentials or you can use these digital credentials to access government services healthcare logins uh certain discounts from retail brands um but recently uh the ftc uh or excuse me yeah, the uh, irs had uh set up a requirement for the use of id.me uh to authenticate to and access their services uh the senators are asking them to uh uh, to the FTC to investigate this company for basically deceptive statements that the founder had made regarding facial recognition and how it's collected. Um, the issue here surrounds basically the use of one-to-one -one and one-to-many recognition. And one-to-one -one recognition, this is basically a one-time comparison of two images, say the image you provide and then a driver's license uh, in order to confirm an applicant's identity. Uh, then you have one-to-many, which involves comparing the face against a database of other faces to find potential matches. Um, and with the latter, you know, if that's not ringing, raising some red flags, it, it should be. Um, and so with senators, it certainly is because they're concerned that the use of this facial type of facial recognition means that millions of people will have their photographs queried uh, without authorization uh, in order to provide identification to uh users that are trying to access the the the, the irs's uh services so you know not only does this 
create privacy issues, but it also, there's the issue of false positive matches with one-to-many recognition um, and, you know, the potential for users to be denied services uh, based on a, uh, a, a false a false negative. Um, so, you know, back in 2021, ID.me's founder basically came out and said, we don't use one-to-many recognition. But then uh, the IRS pretty much came out with uh, new guidance saying that, uh, you know, basically stating that this type of recognition should not be in use. And there's a lot of concerns around the use of it. Uh, and so they walked back their statement, changed all of their white papers on their on their site and their and their research to basically reflect that actually we do use one to many. And this only came after much internal pressure from its employees who were aware that they are using the one to many method as opposed to the one to one method, although that was not what was being rep- uh, represented to the public. Uh, so as a result, the House Oversight and Reform Committee last month began the investigation into uh, ID.me's practices. Um, you know, so right off the bat for me, the, you know, the big the questions that come to this is, you know, not only are they being ethical about what they say they're doing, but how do we know that Gary data isn't being leaked? Um, how do what is the demonstrative evidence that they are actually because they make the claim that they wipe this data after use? How do we know that they're actually doing that? Where is the documentation that proves that? Um, what happens if there is a leak, and how do we guarantee there are sufficient controls again, uh, you know, surrounding these? So, uh, it's kind of brings into question whether we need kind of like a communized, common platform for uh, online identity, or you know, where we can actually have strict controls and robust maintenance programs, um, as opposed to investing in all these half-baked solutions with user-friendly systems that uh, create many points of failure. So uh, yeah, lots of kind of things to think about with this type of situation. Have any of you guys used this ID.me? I I had to use it recently to, like you said, access the IRS uh, payment portal. I won't say why, but yes. I think we all have. And then, like like, like was mentioned, it's uh, the, the user side of it is not very comfortable, uh, but I know that the states have said that it's helped prevent fraud, so that's a good thing, and I totally understand why these systems are being pursued. So I was yeah. at Hartsville-Jackson International Airport. I like saying it because it's such a long name. <laughs> and so we have um, pre-check, and so I'm in their system or whatever. Yes, the line is usually longer at pre-check than it is at the, uh, the, the regular line. Why in Atlanta, I don't know, but it is what it is. They usually only have like two people open. But what I didn't like about it is when you get up to the thing, you put your ID in the machine, it scans it, and then they take a picture of you. And I'm like, where's the opt-out in this? Like, why do you need to take a real-time photo of me today to go past airport security? Like, where's the privacy policy in all of this? I, I challenged and said, why do I have to do this? Right. And then I'm like, oh, I better just shut up and be compliant because then I'm going to have to go through the regular line and I don't want to take my shoes and laptop out. Yeah, there you go. So, you know, they didn't really give you an option. It's like you do it or or you got to go to this line over there. And I said, OK, take the picture. But like, are they going to use this in the ID.me portal? I mean, the TSA is tied into all these people, right? To log into their website, you got to do some of that to validate yourself. So anyways, I just, yeah, it's very interesting. And then to see that they're changing white papers and things on the fly, that's kind of interesting as well. That's a little Go back sketchy. to the Wayback Machine and see what really was there. Exactly. That's a good point. Yeah, it is. It's very, 
it's very sketchy. Certainly, it doesn't it doesn't build trust put that way. Right, and this is supposed to be like a uh, a federally approved system that for 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 validation, and it's like, how do you know they're not if if they're lying about how they're actually implementing the the standard? Then who's to say that they're not collecting and selling the data that comes from it? Even you know, there's 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 pretty much no guarantee there. Um, so I think that's really where the concern here is a matter of you know is the, are these companies that we're trusting to uh, play a major role in the safety of our online you know data are are they being held to uh, a sufficient standard where you know if something like this happens not only will there be uh, ramification you know there needs to be some kind of legal ramifications towards the company and the owners that make these claims so um, yeah it's uh, yeah, no, and especially when when they're championing championing uh, consumer privacy, so it's just a lot of contradictory statements here, and uh, ultimately it brings into question whether or not we need kind of like a a single uh, highly vetted system to handle these uh, types of needs, and it, you know it all stems back to that online identity thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what kind of cracks me up too sometimes is people will get like really what's the word I want to use here? Maybe defensive in some of these scenarios, like, Oh, like, well, you like, like you can't take my picture and then, or whatever. Right. And then five minutes later, that person's posting 25 selfies to TikTok or Instagram or whatever, you know, the same thing, but I guess maybe it's like, who's in control of that data. Who's taking that. And like we said, like, Hey, you know, these, even like these online social media companies, I mean, like, like you, you can jokingly say that they can become your your authenticator because they have more pictures on you than any, anything else in general, right? And say, hey, like, like actually crowdsource it. Like, hey, is this really Derek? And then, like, here's 50 photos. You know, pick pick the 10 that are that are real, right? So, uh, there's just certain things that kind of you know make it very interesting, right? But this, you know, the privacy factor and you know the kind of this digital identity and i think we all agree something needs to change you know as to what we don't know but i mean if you look at it from a a a password perspective like that that ship has kind of set sail right you know we're we're kind of well past the security of what that can kind of provide and you need something something different don't know what that is but you know we'll we'll figure it out 100 percent. awesome um, anything you guys want to kind of close out with? Uh, I think we had some great, great conversations and great topics this one. And um, I don't know, any, any kind of closing thoughts from anybody? I, nice appreciate that those kinds of, I appreciate that these things are being discussed in the news. Um, you know, security and privacy has been more on the tongues of news journalists, et cetera, um, and in our, our senators and, and uh, congressional representatives as well. Um, obviously ignoring these problems or, expecting the market to just solve it themselves isn't really going to be a solution. So I, I encourage everybody to be thinking about these things and have discussions with their organization, with their loved ones, et cetera. Don't put your head in the sand. How about that? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> My closing note is just go enable one non SMS MFA account somewhere that you have <laughs> just one. That's all it takes. Just start there. You don't have to do them all in one night, but just start with one. You'll probably start with your bank. It's not a bad place to start. Great idea. Bank, PayPal, <laughs> Zelle, whatever. Start somewhere. Freeze yeah. that credit. <laughs> awesome. All right, guys. Thank you again. Uh, be sure to like, subscribe, follow, send us some love, shoot us some tweets, whatnot. And um, yeah, take care. Excellent. See you all, guys. Cyberspace. Peace. Bye.